are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. It's, it's great to be with you guys uh, this morning as we get to open God's Word together. We're going to be in Acts chapter 10, so if you want to turn there now, you totally can. Uh, but before we get there, I, I just want to uh, let you guys know, a lot of you had known this about me already, but um, I came up here a little over a year ago, uh, and I was from a town in California called Paso Robles. And most people have no idea where Paso Robles is. Uh, it's it's uh, on the central coast, which is like San Luis Obispo County. It's about halfway in between San Francisco and Los Angeles, just right on the beach. It's a beautiful area. And Paso Robles is now known as kind of, it's like a wannabe Napa. So it's really trying hard to be just like Napa with wine country. So it's exploded in the last 15 years or so. But when I was growing up, nothing was there. It was awful. The best thing there was a Denny's. It was just nothing good comes from Paso Robles, just like nothing good would come from Nazareth is what they were saying, right, back then. And so uh, people would be like, nothing good, nothing good could come from Paso Robles. We, it was a big deal when we got a Target, like a huge, huge deal. And I remember when I was a senior in high school and we got a Jamba Juice, like we thought we had made it. Like it was a big, big deal. So compared to like Bellevue and Seattle where everything you want is here, it was just like this town of 20,000 um, just didn't have a lot of really cool things there. Now there's a bunch of like nice restaurants and things that goes with the wine country and being in a kind of famous famous wine area. Um, so it's interesting seeing how my hometown has shifted over the years. But when I was growing up, there was one thing that so many people from our county did and so many people just from around the state would do. It was a huge deal in my area. And it happened every summer in July, and it was called the California Mid-State Fair. And the California Mid-State Fair took place in Paso Robles every single year. And um, I, I just... <sighs> Can I make a confession this morning? Okay, this is a safe place, right? I hate the Mid-State Fair. I, I hate it. I hate it so much. And it came every year in Paso Robles. Now, I, you guys are a really kind congregation. Now, if I said those words in Paso Robles, like, you don't say you hate the Mid-State Fair in Paso Robles. Like, there would be pitchforks coming out right now from the people that work at the fair. Um, and, and look, I mean, I hate the, I hate the Mid-State Fair, and I know that, like, if I said those words in Paso Robles, it's kind of like killing a sacred cow, which, ironically, is what they do at the Mid-State Fair. And, uh, but I hate it for, I hate it for so many reasons, you know, I hate that it takes place every year, and it's so hot in my hometown. Like, we moved to, like, people were like, oh, can you handle the rain in Seattle? We're like, we welcome it. Every day when it rains in Seattle, we're like, yes, it's not 115 degrees at the Mid-State Fair. So that the sun just, like, beats down on you the whole day. Everyone at the Mid-State Fair is just dripping sweat, wearing short shorts. I don't look good in any shorts, much less... Short, short, shorts. And uh, that, so I hate that part of the Mid-State Fair. I hate the food at the Mid-State Fair. Like, fair food just grosses me out, and it's all overpriced. It's like, oh, I don't know what I need to eat, but I can't leave the fair. It's too complicated to, to go away and come back in for parking and all that. So I guess I'll eat a corn dog. How much could that possibly cost? So like $55. <laughs> cool. 
It's gross. Like, I, I'm just not, I'm not a big fan. I don't like, because there's a big 4-H thing down there, and the animals, like, I hate the smells of the Mid-State Fair. You know, like, this, no, this is a goat who knows what's going to happen to him after the fair. You guys, he's like, oh, no, he's going to go meet Jesus. I mean, this, that, and, but they just, the whole time at the fair, just this rank smell coming at you. Like, I'm just, I'm not a fan of the rides at the Mid-State Fair. Like, there's all these rides there that make me sick. Like, I, I can't, um, I can't go on a lot of roller coasters or spinning rides. I get that passed down from my dad. Uh, he gets sick like looking at a carousel. And so when, and this is a true story, by the way. My dad also grew up in Paso Robles and he met my mom. They went on their first date. It was a blind date at the Mid-State Fair <laughs> where all true love happens. And my mom loves spinning rides, loves them. And so she's like, Steve, can we please go on the Tilt-A-Whirl? And my dad, being the man's man he is, goes, absolutely, my love. Goes and sits down in the Tilt-A-Whirl. Proceeds to throw up everywhere, like on her. It was the Tilt-A-Hurl. And he, after he gets off the Tilt-A-Hurl, he looks at her, he's like, and, but she forgives him and they're still married. So that's great. So guys, if you're looking for a romantic date, uh, Tilt-A-Whirl, Mid-State Fair. No, I, I hate those rides. And all my friends would always want to go on the rides. And I couldn't do them. And so I'd just sit there and like smell the goats or whatever. Um, I hate so much about it. Guys, I hate the country music. I just, I, uh, the country music that's played there every year. Now I know, okay, I, I know. I know that I just alienated like half of the room. Okay, like I, there's like three of you who are like, yeah. Emo music forever, right? Like, but most of you just got vehemently upset with me. I saw people walk in this morning with cowboy hats, and I knew I was in trouble. And, um, but I just am not a fan. I'm not a fan of the country music. Uh, it's, it's too repetitive for me, I, and maybe I just haven't found the right singer in country music, but that's not permission for you to show me who they are after this. Uh, I, I don't need to know. I've heard enough. I've heard enough, uh, and I don't like it. And I know that I'm doing the opposite. Like, if... When, when you get trained in communication, they tell you you're supposed to win over your audience within three minutes or else they'll stop listening to you for the rest of the way. And I know that I've done the opposite of that, so I'm deeply sorry. <laughs> but there's some of you in the room like, I don't care what this guy preaches on now. I'm done. I'm done here. <laughs> um, so, look, I, I, I don't like the Mid-State Fair for so many reasons, but the biggest reason that I think that I really don't like the fair is I always run into people that I don't want to see there. Like, because it's a small town, it's a small area, and everyone knows each other. I'll run into people every time I go to the fair, there's, without fail, there's at least two or three people where I'm like, oh, I was hoping I'd never have to see this person again the rest of my life. Like, something embarrassing that I did as a middle school, like, hey, that's the guy! <laughs> That's the middle school guy who ripped his pants once. Ha <laughs> ha, how's it going, Zach the Ripper? And I'm like, ah, I don't, I'm just really not liking this interaction. You know, it's uncomfortable. Or I used to be a teacher before I was a pastor, so I'd see all my students at the fair. And the last thing a teacher wants to see is their students during the summer at the Mid-State Fair. I would see people that I grew up with, but we'd just gone our separate ways, and they're just living a completely different life than me. So they're just like drunk and they're like, yeah, Garth Brooks. And I'm like, oh, oh I don't like this. You know, they're like, have you smelled the goats yet? And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. And there's, there's just people that, that they're, they're living a life that's different than the one I do. And so I'm like, this is uncomfortable. 
But also it's because most people that I'm around, they know I'm a Christian or they know I'm a pastor. So when I show up at the Mid-State Fair, I think that there's this propensity for people to think that I'm going to evangelize to them or something. You know, like I'm walking around with my Bible just like waiting to like place it in people's hands. It's like, hey, you don't need this Bud Light anymore. Jesus is the fulfillment and the living water. And, and then I'll tell them about how he turned water into wine and they'll listen to me. You know, like I, 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 I don't think uh, that people, you know, understand that I'm not always walking around like trying to co- convert you at every turn. But that's sometimes the feeling I get because I'll get there and they'll be like, oh, hey, are you still doing that pastor thing? I'm like, yeah, still doing that pastor thing. And they're like, oh, <laughs> see you later, you know? And and it's just, it's awkward, okay? So, like, I, I in, in order to avoid the people I don't want to see at the fair, the easiest way to avoid uncomfortable people is just to avoid the location where I'm going to run into people to make me uncomfortable, right? Like, that's, I feel like, true of a lot of us. Like, we're, we, we tend to avoid places where we know we're going to have an awkward or an uncomfortable encounter, and where am I going with all this? Well, we're, we're going to look this morning in Scripture at a story that illustrates this point pretty well. So I'd love to pray for us as, as we open God's Word together this morning. Jesus, you are good. Thank you for the ability and the freedom to come and worship you this morning and sing your truth. God, as we reflect on the truth of your Word that you have given us, we know that it doesn't return void. So as it goes out from my mouth today, would it encourage all of us in this room, myself included, would it convict us in this room, myself included, would it call us to action? Would we not just be hearers of the word, but would we be people who do what it says? So Jesus, would you help us this morning with that? In your name, amen. So again, we're in Acts chapter 10, just to set the stage of where we're at. Uh, Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, the apostle Peter, he is uh, in Joppa in Acts chapter 9. And he's done just a bunch of miracles. So uh, he's done some really miraculous things. He has a big following. People are really excited about what he's doing. And at the end of um, Acts 9, 42-43, it says, And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one, Simon, a tanner, and he's at a house by the sea. So uh, he's with this guy that's known as a tanner, and a tanner is someone who works with animal carcasses, right? And so, and skins the hides and stuff of animals. And so a tanner, because of the smells, I mean, the tanner's house was awful, right? Smelling really bad, similar to the Mid-State Fair. And so the tanner's house would be on the outskirts of the city, and, uh, and they weren't allowed to, like, they had to be really clean before they'd be around anybody. They were ostracized. They were, they were definitely like a, a profession that people needed, but it was not one that everyone was striving after. No one grew up being like, oh, I can't wait to be a tanner. This is exactly what I want to do is to be isolated from my community and smelly all day. Um, and, and actually, it's in, in Jewish literature, it, it is true that um, a woman is allowed to call off her engagement if she found out she was going to be married to a tanner. That's how, like, despised they were. And so Peter's at this guy's house, and I don't know, I mean, it doesn't say this in the text, but I I want to just kind of draw an assumption, given how sometimes Peter can kind of be a little brash, and Peter can kind of be a little confident. I think that he might be thinking, you know what? I'm loving somebody that's really hard to love. You know who wouldn't be here? John. John wouldn't be here. 
I'm here though. James, you never see James at the Tanner's house. Good for me. I'm with someone that no one else is here for. I'm with someone that's really hard to love. And Peter is at this place with someone who is difficult, but God has a good sense of humor. And um, Peter's about to experience someone much more difficult. And so in Acts chapter 10, so the very next verse here, at Caesarea, there's a man named Cornelius. And he's a centurion of what's known as the Italian cohort. So he's a Roman soldier. He's a centurion. It means he's a non-commissioned officer, usually about 300 to 600 people. It says he's a devout man who feared God with all his household, which is really interesting to me. So he's rejected the polytheism of his day, and he's fearing God. But he gives alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. And so if I'm reading this chapter, and I read the end of Acts 9, and then I start looking at Acts 10, I'm like, okay, how, where's the connection here? Where, where, where is uh, where's this going? But in Acts 10, 3 through 6, <clears throat> about the ninth hour of the day, he sees clearly in a vision an angel of the Lord comes in and says to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror, and he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa, and bring one Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So he gets a group together, and he sends them out to Joppa. It's a few days' walk. Uh, and so, and then in verse 9, we, we go back to where Peter is. So it says, meanwhile, as they're on their journey and approaching the city, Peter goes up on his housetop about the sixth hour to pray. While he's praying, he gets hungry, and he wants something to eat. But while they were preparing the food, he falls into a trance. And I don't know, like, if, if it's a trance based on, you know, we, a lot of us, I don't think it was the, actually this, but a lot of us get those, like, daydreams, you know, where we can, the food is, like, so close, we can almost taste it. Like, some of you guys didn't have breakfast this morning, and you're, you're just ready for lunch. You're like, when is this guy going to wrap it up? Like, I'm going out to eat brunch with my family after this. And you can, like, see the waffles right now. They're just, like, floating among you. Or maybe for the less spiritual of you, you're thinking about mid-state fair food. You know, like, it's just, <laughs> I'm just not going to let it go. Um, so so you're, you're thinking about and daydreaming about this. And, and Peter is as well. And he falls into this deep, deep trance. And so he has this vision here in 11 through 13. <clears throat> he says, It saw the heavens open, and something like a great sheet descends, and it's being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So this huge sheet descends down. These animals are on this sheet, and Peter's looking at these animals, and a voice comes in, says, Rise, go kill and eat these animals. And Peter's really hungry, but he's also a really good Jewish boy, and he knows that based on the laws of Leviticus, everything on that sheet is forbidden for him to eat. It's completely unclean. It's not kosher. And so, in verse 14, he protests. He says, But Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice comes to him a second time, and it says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happens three times, and then the sheet goes back up into heaven. I love Peter. He is, to me, the most relatable person in all of Scripture. It always takes him so long to get things 
You know, it's like me. I, 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 it takes me a long time to like, to understand some things when people say context clues to me, right? Like Peter had to deny Jesus three times before he realized what he was doing, right? It was on the third one when the rooster finally crows and he's like, oh, I did what I wasn't supposed to do. And then when Peter or when Jesus reinstates Peter on the shore in John 21, when he shows back up and forgives Peter for denying him three times, Jesus has to do it three different times. He's like, hey, do you love me? And Peter's like hurt. He's like, oh, Lord, oh, you know I love you. And Jesus is like, Peter, I'm forgiving you. Like, go, go feed my sheep. He's like, oh, okay, I get it. This time around, he's like, sees the vision. And he's like, no way I'm supposed to eat that snake. No way. And it takes three times, and then Peter's still pretty puzzled about it. He's sitting on his rooftop, and then right then, he starts to hear a knock on the door, and he's like, what's going on? And he goes downstairs, opens the door, and there's Roman guards there. And they're like, hey, you're going to come with us. <laughs> I don't, I just feel like that would be terrifying, right? Like if you're Peter. These guys represent the people who killed his best friend, right? The Roman guards killed his best friend, and they're persecuting Christians. And they show up and they're like, hey, you're going to come with us. We came all this way to get you. <laughs> I, they probably didn't say it that menacingly, but that's probably how Peter heard it. And so he then starts to think, wait a second. I don't think God in this vision was talking about animals being unclean. I think it's people. I don't think it's a coincidence that I have this vision about what God has made clean, don't call unclean. And then these guys show up and they're people that I would consider to be unclean. And in that context, it was a big deal for a Jewish man to go to a Gentile's house, to accept any kind of Gentile hospitality. The Jews called the Gentiles goyim. It was an offensive term for them. They usually spit when they'd say it. It was just something that they, that we will not associate with this group. And Peter says, okay, I'll go with you. It's amazing. It takes a lot of courage. He goes with them a few days walk, and he shows up, and he's, I don't know what he's expecting to see there, but he opens the door and sees Cornelius and his whole family and a bunch of other people like, hey, Peter, it's so good to see you. We're here for a Bible study. He's like, what? What? You're here for a Bible study? Like, they're like, yeah, we've been waiting for you so you can teach us what this says. Church, I think that sometimes... We have the propensity to look at people a certain way that we think might be unreachable. That we think, though the gospel can't get to so-and-so. The gospel could never, I mean, these people would never follow Jesus, right? Like, I, I don't know, I mean, maybe one day if God does something crazy, right? And we've heard stories of God redeeming people in powerful ways, but we still, I think, have this like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if they'll ever follow Jesus. And I think it's a temptation that a lot of us have is that we, but, but what we need to realize is that we see this in scripture a lot. The people who the world thinks is really, really, really far from God are actually far closer than most of the religious people. Jesus spends a lot more time railing on religious Pharisees than he does on pagans. 
And the pagans tend to want to know. They're like seeking, they're hungry, they're thirsty. And so Cornelius and these, these a bunch of Roman polytheists, or at least people who don't really understand Jesus, but they're trying, are sitting there going, well, can you tell us about this? I, I know in my own life, I've had the tendency to look at people and go, oh no, I don't know that, that I could share the gospel with them. I don't know that I could tell them about Jesus because they're, they're never gonna get it which is just my way of excusing myself from going to someone that's difficult. Because I'll just say, well, no, no, they're not going to get it. When I was in college, I was leading a Bible study. I was part of a group called the Navigators Christian Fellowship. It's kind of like Campus Crusade or InterVarsity. And my bachelor's degree was at a school called Long Beach State in California. It's a um, very, very public university, not a Christian university at all. Uh, very few Christians on campus, and so we did this thing called investigative Bible discussions, which we were supposed to leave our doors open, we would be reading the, the scripture, and we would, um, it was a designed in a way that someone who didn't believe in Jesus could step in and get something out of it. So the questions would be things like, what does this passage say about God? What does this passage say about man? What am I going to do about it? And there's always an application step. It's a really cool, neat little system. Um, so that we were doing these IBDs, or investigative Bible discussions. And, and we would always start the discussion by praying that someone would walk in and join us who didn't believe in Jesus. And I began to get convicted about this. And I'm like, wait, we're, we're praying, which is important. We should be praying. But shouldn't we also be like, going to ask people. And I remember one guy that was with us was like, no, 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 if God wants them here, he'll bring them here. And I'm like, well, true. <laughs> but he might be using us to bring them here, you know? And so, but, we, but regardless, we're praying about it. And as we're praying and opening up God's word once, two guys come in from our uh, suite. So they're in like the room right around the corner from us. And they had been drinking pretty heavily. And they show up and they see what we're doing. They're like, what the is this? You know, said this terrible word. And they're like, what is this? And we're like, huh, huh. We're reading a book. We had just been praying that God would bring people like this to us. And then they do show up on a golden platter for us. And we're like, it's a book club. <laughs> Don't, please go away, you know. And they're like, what are you reading? And like, they're doing all the work for us. We're like, it's the Bible. They're like, what's it about? Again, they're doing all the work for us. And we're like, it's about Jesus and stuff. Um, and then one of us musters up the courage as they're like, you know, alcohol fumes are just coming at us. And they're just like, do you want to read it with us? And one guy looks at us and he's like, Absolutely not. He said it a lot meaner than that, but I can't repeat it here. And he leaves, and then the other guy looks at us, and he goes, I know what you guys are thinking. He's going to sit down and come to Jesus. And he looks at us and goes, absolutely not. And he leaves too. And we're like, oh, Jesus, we tried, you know. <laughs> Guess it's time for our holy huddle to commence again. And, you know, we just kind of gather back around the text again. So next week, they showed up again. And I'm pretty sure we left the door open on accident. But 
they show up. Are you guys still reading this dumb thing? It's the Bible. Yeah, we're still reading it. Do you want to read it with us? Absolutely not. And they leave. But the next week, one guy shows up without his buddy. And he's like, so you guys really believe this stuff, don't you? Dummies. And we're like, yeah, we, we really do. We believe it. So he sits down with us. And he's like, do you mind if I join you? And we're like, this is it. He's coming to the Lord. And he proceeds to make fun of us for two hours. Just belligerent. He's making fun of everything we say. He's like, you believe that there's a talking snake, you dumb Christians. I can't believe you believe in a God who allows this kind of evil in the world. You really believe that all those animals fit on that boat? Come on, what is wrong with you? There's miracles? Okay. Have you ever seen a dead guy rise? Blah, blah, blah. And we're like, we were just talking about you know, Jesus feeding people, right? And he's just going off on us, right? And so we are like, okay, this isn't working. But he kept coming back. And he showed up again. And the next week, he brought a Bible with him. And he goes, I'm just going to sit here with my own Bible so I can show you how wrong you are. We're like, all right. So he proceeds to go through it with us. And the next week, he came back again. About five weeks later, he gave his life to Jesus. He went to our church, he got baptized, then he became part of Navigators Christian Fellowship with us. He went as a missionary for the Navigators to Japan, which is one of the most atheistic countries in the world, leading these kind of investigative Bible discussions in Japan. Isn't God cool? Like, that's, that's an amazing story that, yeah, and it's amazing and it had nothing to do with us. We almost blew it every time. We're just like, oh, our book club, you know? And he's, and God's like kicking open the door to this guy's life. It was incredible. It was life-changing for us to be a part of seeing what God can do. And I think that so many of us were like, ah, that person will never come. This was definitely a guy that I was like, he will never know who Jesus is. And God... <laughs> It's like all things are possible for you who believes. I mean, this, this is, why would you doubt this? That God can do these things. That so many people that we think are so far from God are far closer than we think. So, Peter, after telling them and reminding Cornelius, like, hey, you know that it's unlawful for me to be here. I'm taking a big risk by being here. I'm sticking my neck out societally by being here. And also maybe literally if you're the kind of centurions that you know want to kill me. I, I, I'm taking a big risk here. But what he's, when Cornelius is like, hey, would you just teach us what's going on? Peter says in verse 34, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And which Cornelius and his family come to know the Lord at the end of the story. They get baptized. The whole, the whole house gets baptized. It's this incredible story. And it does beg the question, like, why did Cornelius need Peter to come, right? It said in the beginning he was devout. It said that he was sacrificing alms generously, right? If you guys remember that, it said he knew God. But Cornelius was missing two key ingredients. He was missing Jesus, and he was missing grace, he was trying to do everything on his own and by works-based. And Peter comes and reminds him, hey, you just need Jesus. This is, this is what you're missing. And Cornelius gets it. He gets the good news. 
I want to spend the last few minutes of our time asking a few questions of you this morning and of myself. The first question is, who gets the good news? Who gets the good news? Now, you know, a good amount of us are familiar to church. We've been here for a while. And the church answer is, everybody, right? The good news is for everybody. Jesus loves everybody. And I would agree, but I would ask how often our lives reflect what we say. Is the good news in our actions really for everybody? Or is Christianity just for people who like us and are like us? Is it for uncomfortable, difficult, different people? Or is it just for our circle? And if it is for uncomfortable, difficult people, are we going to those people? That passage that Steve read before I came on stage, you might have noticed, was from Acts 1. Jesus, in Acts 1, gives the disciples this command. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Well, the Holy Spirit fell in Acts chapter 2, and in Acts chapter 10, the good news is still just for Jewish people. They haven't taken it to Judea. They haven't taken it to Samaria. They have definitely not taken it to the ends of the earth. They're barely still out of Jerusalem. And so th this is just like, why, why did they get this command and it takes them this long for Peter to be like, oh my goodness, these people aren't actually unclean. What God has made clean, what God has reconciled to us, to the church, let no one call unclean. The good news really is for everybody. Peter has this sheet drop, and it has the unclean animals on it. And he recognizes that those unclean animals represented Cornelius and his family who wanted to hear the good news of Jesus. The second question for you this morning is who is on your sheet? If you had a sheet drop from the sky like Peter did, there's probably some of us, at least a few of us, who have some faces coming to mind right now. People, you're like, oh, I hope that they aren't, but they probably are. They're probably the hard, difficult people that God is calling me to go to. I think that for a lot of us, <laughs> our sheet would be uncomfortably full of people that we want to avoid, which is not what Jesus would do. Alexander White puts it this way about the church the, the, and, and uh, some of Christian culture. He says, this is so much like ourselves. We also bundle up whole nations of men and we throw them into that same unclean sheet. Whole churches that we know nothing about except for their bad names that we've given them are on our sheet of excommunication also. Are there even some people groups that some of you think, man, I don't know if they'll ever come to know Jesus and I don't think it's my responsibility. Are there other churches that you disagree with a doctrinal statement that you're like, I don't know that I can fellowship with them because I disagree over X or Y or Z? 
are they on your sheet of excommunication? All the other denominations of Christian in our land are common and unclean to us. Every party outside our own party in the political state also. We have no language contemptuous enough wherewith to describe their wicked ways and their self-seeking schemes. Indeed, there are very few men alive, and especially those who live near us, who are not sometimes in the sheet of our own scorn, unless it is one here and one there of our own family, school, or party. They are four-footed beasts and creeping things. Do you fellowship with people who are different than you? Who are hard to love? Do you go to people who are difficult to love? Do you go to people of the opposite political party, Republican or Democrat, that you disagree with and you think that based on their belief system that there's no way that they could know the real Jesus? Do you engage them? Or are you creating Christianity for people who like you and are like you? Church, we, myself included, need to ask ourselves, what are we going to do about it? If there's a sheet that drops and there's people on our sheet that we need to go to, what would we do about it? We have to go to the people who are difficult, who are uncomfortable, who are difficult to love. Why? Well, because if you read through the Gospels, Jesus spent his whole ministry doing it. Jesus interacted with people on the fringe, on the outskirts, people that were different than him, people it was a societal taboo to interact with, and he did it regularly and with grace and truth. Bob Goff puts it this way, Jesus spent his whole life engaging the people most of us have spent our whole lives trying to avoid. (sighs) You know, I joked about the people I don't want to run into at the fair (laughs) And of course, there's people in my life besides them that are hard. They're hard to love. People that have wronged me. People that are are uncomfortable. People that I don't want to be around. And God is telling me, just like he's telling all of you, we can't just stay in our own little Jerusalem and talk to people who we think are somewhat difficult, pat ourselves on the back and go, well, at least I'm at the Tanner's house. God may be calling you to the centurion's house. And what would you do about it if he does? You know, what I think is really cool about this passage is that Peter is in this city at the the beginning, right? Before he goes to Cornelius' house, he's in a city called Joppa. Joppa is, we see this at a different place in Scripture. In the Old Testament, in the book of Jonah, God comes to Jonah. He's a prophet, and he says, hey, you're going to go to the Ninevites, people who are really difficult to love, and you're going to tell them to repent. And do you know what Jonah does? He runs. Do you know where he is, where he's trying to run? Joppa. God comes to him in Joppa, and he's like, you're going to go to these people who are hard to love. And he's like, absolutely not. And then he gets swallowed by a whale, and then a few days later he gets spit back out. It's this crazy story. And then he goes to the Ninevites, and he does tell them, but then he's mad when God spares them. He's mad when God shows his grace. At the end of Jonah, we see Jonah sitting in a place east of the city, complaining, God, I knew you were so gracious. God, I knew you were so kind. It's like, 
why are you mad about that, right? He's like, God, I knew you're so good and loving. I'm like, that's the first time I've ever seen God get insulted for being nice. He's like, you're so good and loving and kind. And, and, and God's like, absolutely. And he's like, why are you sparing these people, you know? And I look at this passage and I go, why did Jonah have such a hard time going to these people that were difficult to love? Even after he got saved from the whale, he still had a hard time. And then he wanted God to smite them all. And he wanted to sit east of Nineveh and just kind of watch with his binoculars as God lit the whole city on fire. That's what Jonah was hoping for. And then Peter, a few thousand years later, there was a prophet who was called to go to people who were hard to love in Joppa. Then there's an apostle who's called to go to people who are hard to love in Joppa. And Peter says, yes. I'll go to the people who are hard to love. I will go to the people who represent the same men who murdered my best friend and savior. I'll go to them. What is the difference there? I think it's because Jonah never realized how much he needed God's forgiveness too. He acted high and mighty at the end of that Jonah chapter 4, even though he really messed up too. Peter, I think, finally got it. You know, Peter pats himself on the back a lot in Scripture. He's really relatable. He likes to be really confident. And he sometimes will, will say things where he's like, look, Jesus, look how great I am. I'm better than John and James, right? Like, uh, this isn't the first time he's done that. In Matthew chapter 18, there's this famous exchange, the story that Jesus tells about forgiveness. <clears throat> and Peter says, he comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as much as seven times? And Peter has got to be thinking, John would never forgive anyone seven times. They're always, <laughs> they're always arguing who's the greatest, right? So John, pfft, he, he, he only forgives someone four times, Jesus. I'm willing to take it to seven. But Jesus, how often should I forgive someone? Like at what point is the guy just an idiot? Like, at what point do I just need to keep forgiving over and over and over again, up to seven times? And Jesus says, no, I tell you, not just seven, but 70 times seven. And Peter's like, oh, no. He's going to do a story, isn't he? And Jesus is like, absolutely. And so he gathers everyone around and he tells a parable. It's a story that illustrates a deeper meaning. And Jesus in verse 23 says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. You guys aren't laughing. That's odd. Oh, I forget, we're not like an ancient Near Eastern culture, okay? This is funny Jesus. All right, let me explain, okay? 10,000 talents is a ridiculous amount of money. The entire province, so Josephus is a Roman historian, right, around the same time period, or Jewish, he's a Jewish historian actually, but Josephus wrote in his history annals about the tax provinces. And the entire province that Jesus was in, the annual tax revenue for all of it was 800 talents. So this guy owes more than the entire tax of all of the provinces. It's hundreds of years worth of labor. And he owes 10,000 talents. So the crowd would have been laughing, right? They would have been like, this is funny. Jesus, you're so silly. No one could ever owe 10,000 talents. And Jesus says, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold. And with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees 
begging him, have patience with me and I will repay you. Okay, now the crowd is just going ballistic, okay? Like, this is funny. Jesus, this is, this is just hysterical. Jesus, why? No, no one can repay this kind of a debt. 10,000 talents? He'd have to work it off for hundreds of years. He can't do this. He's going to pay everything. Oh, that guy's so dead. Get him, king. All the crowds are, get him, king. Oh, king's going to kill him. And then, 27, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgives him the entire debt. The crowd's stunned. Then Jesus says, but when that same servant went out, the one who was forgiven 10,000 talents, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. It's about four months' wages. This guy was forgiven hundreds of years' worth of wages, and he has someone who owes him roughly four months' day wages. And the crowd has got to be thinking, this guy's going to forgive the guy, right? He's got to. He literally just left the king who totally forgave him all of his debt. He'll forgive this guy, but this is what he does. <clears throat> he seizes him. He begins to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and begged him, pleaded with him, have mercy on me and I will pay you. But he refused and put him into prison until he would repay the debt. This guy is Jonah. Gets swallowed by the whale, gets forgiven all of the sin he just committed against the Lord Most High, and then still wants everyone else to pay for their crimes. Just not me. Everyone else, though, make them pay. Make them suffer. I was wronged. Give them what they owe me. Now, Peter realizes, he hears this story in Matthew 18 a few chapters later, while his best friend is dying, he's weeping bitterly in the courtyard because he denied three times that he even knew him. And Peter is thinking, I can never come back from this. There's no going back. And Peter goes back to his old life, he goes back to fishing. And in John 21, Jesus shows up and he sits down with Peter and he looks him in the eyes and he says three different times, feed my sheep. In other words, you're forgiven, I love you, and you still have a job to do. Go feed the sheep. Peter got it. I've been forgiven 10,000 talents so I can go to Cornelius and forgive him whatever wrong he's done because I know what I've been forgiven. Church, do you realize how much you've been forgiven? Do we realize this? Everyone in this room, all of us, we've been forgiven a 10,000 talent debt. And if we want to really forgive well, it's when we understand how well that we have been forgiven. Now, don't get me wrong. There's people in this room that have been harmed in really really horrific ways. And for you to actually go to some of the people who have harmed you would not, it would be dangerous. There's some people that are just unsafe to be around. But for most of us in this room, that's not the case. It's not that these people are unsafe. It's just that they're uncomfortable. It's that it causes us to have to let go of the debt that we think we are owed. It causes us to say, 
Can I forgive this person the way Jesus has forgiven me? Can I go to the people who are on my sheet? Can I go to the people that I think are unclean? Is the good news for them? Is the good news really for everybody? I believe it is. But Jesus, help me live like it. I hope that's our prayer as we leave. I, hope, I believe the good news is for everybody, even the people that are hard to love. Jesus, let me live like it.